0: In Daniel chapter 10. Poor kid. Daniel chapter 10. Well, what I want to remind you of is what we read just a few weeks ago. I'm going to read a passage from 2 Peter, and you can turn there if you want. But what I want to remind you of is is what prophecy is. And in 1 Peter, excuse me, 2 Peter, uh, Peter writes about prophecy. Now, we've talked about the two elements of prophecy. Prophecy, number one, is many times the foretelling of something that's going to happen in the future. It's what we most likely think of when we think of prophecy is God telling something that's a future event to a group of people that have not experienced it yet. Now, there's a second element, and that element is prophecy is the forth telling of the Word of God. And so you can read God's Word to someone, and there's a prophetic element to it. You can teach them something about God, and it can have an effect on what they believe about God. It's prophecy. Uh, but today, primarily, our passage is going to deal with things that have not yet happened in the lives of the people that are going to hear the message In chapter 11 of Daniel, and I said chapter 10, but chapter 11, uh, Daniel's going to receive a word from the Lord that is a vision that is essentially the same vision as chapter 11 and 12. It's all one vision, but we're going to break it up into two weeks because it's quite lengthy. But what we need to know about this prophecy is that it's God speaking to a people something that's going to happen in the future. And even the prophet himself who receives it, Daniel, will not live to see these events take place. And so what we need to remember is that God gives us prophecy for, I think, two reasons. And I stole these two reasons from Jay Vernon McGee. Uh, number one, he gives us history written down in the Bible before it takes place, and he records it for the following purposes. Number one, to comfort and encourage God's people who will get ready to live through it. i tell you what, if we could get a vision of what's going to happen in our lives before it happens, even the bad stuff, especially the bad stuff, we would be able to live through it many times, knowing that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And that's essentially the vision that Daniel's going to receive. He's going to receive this vision of war and striving between kingdoms, kingdoms that would eventually enslave the Israelite people, But he's going to show them that it's only for a time it's only for this too shall pass one of the best phrases in the bible because this life is full of strife and wars and rumors of wars and natural disasters and many of us many times would like to know hey just tell me what's going to happen so that when it does happen i can remember number two the second reason uh, God's word is there for us to remind us that God knows the end from the beginning. If you can trust a God who knows the entire story, if he can tell you things that are going to happen before they happen, and if he can tell you what happened before you happened, you can trust him for today. If you can trust God for your future, you can trust him in the now. And many times we trust God for our future. I'm going to heaven, my ticket's punched as it were, but we struggle trusting him today. And I'm no different than any of you in this. I know that God has already won the battle against sin. I know from reading books like John and 1 John that my salvation is sealed, I'm good to go. But today, things are going to happen that are going to shake me and cause me to go, is God really in control and is he really doing everything for my good? Is he really in charge of life's events, and did he know this one was coming? But when we read today's passage, we're going to go through a lot of historical events, and I did not get to dig into all the historical events that took place. But what I want you to remember is that since God knows things are going to happen before they do, nothing's outside of his sight, and he can protect his people. And so in the book of Daniel, last week, we see Daniel being prepared to receive this vision he actually in the passage in verse four through nine gets a vision of Jesus. And I spoke to you guys last week, kind of speaking to the fact that many times in order to see everything else in our lives correctly, we need to see Jesus first. He needs to be our white balance. I gave the example of when I was in sports video in middle school, they made us in front of our video cameras these VCR recording, you know, when you actually were going to tape something instead of just record it, we, we still say that, I do. Like, I'm going to tape it on my DVR, you know. But that's the idea is that God places Jesus in front of Daniel's eyes to get proper perspective on what is right and good and righteous, and then he removes that vision and then reveals to him human history. We always need to have perspective that God is above all of these things. He's more powerful than them, and yet we need to trust him that he allows these events to take place and that he's going to do it for the ultimate good for as many people as possible, and especially the nation of Israel, which we're going to read about today. So he gives prophecy to comfort and encourage God's people. That includes us, but in this case, it's going to be the Israelites, because tough times are coming. He gives them this word so that when they come, they can know that God wasn't caught unaware when these things happened. And number two, uh, so that all generations will have a testimony to the fact that God knows the end from the beginning. When Daniel received this prophecy was before the events took place. Now, there are many people that argue and go, well, there are so many specific prophetic words about history that when it was fulfilled, it was almost like this had to be written after it happened. There's no way. But those are the people that don't believe that God sees the end from the beginning. Those are the people that scoff because they're like, well, that would have to be miraculous. Exactly. God is a God of miracles. He's a God of knowledge and wisdom beyond our finding out. He is above time. He's not existent within time like you and I are, so that's not a boundary for him. He sees our lives as a timeline on a on a flat piece of paper, and he can tell us what's going to happen. Not because he can predict things, but because he's already seen them take place, which is impossible for our our finite minds to wrap around. And so in chapter 11, and I guess we'll start in chapter 10, verse 20. (coughs) Verse 20 says, Then Daniel said, Do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia, And when I have gone forth, indeed the prince of Greece will come, but I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael your prince. Also in the year of Darius the Mede, I even I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. So let's back up just a little bit because the context is lacking in these first couple of verses I've read, right? It's like, wow, I feel like I'm starting in the middle of a movie. Well, we we kind of are because we studied it last week, but What I want to point out is that when Daniel received this vision, last week he didn't really receive a vision other than he saw Jesus, and then he got to talk to some angels. And in the midst of his conversation with the angels, what we find out is that these angels reveal something to Daniel that they may not even know that he's unaware of. That behind everything that we see and experience, we taste and touch and smell, and we have interactions with other people and nations, and it's just crazy But behind the scenes, there's a spiritual battle going on behind the scenes that we can't see. It's like Daniel, in talking with this angel, had the veil opened up to this world he was completely unaware of. And this might sound a little bit crude, but um, one of the things that it made me think of is, imagine, if you will, if you (laughs) were—we just heard of somebody this week that was going to have to have brain surgery— and um, they have to have brain surgery while they're awake because the cancer that's in their brain is around some of the areas that if they do surgery while you're asleep they don't know if they've hurt something that could be detrimental to your functioning and so what they do is they open up your head and they leave you awake and then you can't see like there's not a mirror in front of you so you can see what they're doing but you can hear all of it can you imagine how overwhelming that would be it would You know, it would make me sick to my stomach, but it would also make me like, oh gosh, don't touch the wrong stuff, you know, hold still, you know, all those things that go around in your mind. Um, But imagine if somebody were to, um, essentially, if they could, remove the skin from your chest and your belly and put a piece of like plexiglass over it, and all of a sudden you'd be extremely aware of when your heart was beating and when it would slow down a little bit, and when your lungs would be breathing in and out. And when you you know, your, your entrails would be processing food, you'd just be, you know, it, it's something we take for granted, right? It happens, and we're glad, and we only know about it when it stops happening. But if you were able to see it all the time, boy, every time you hiccuped, you'd be like, oh gosh, I hope I didn't hurt that thing. I don't even know what that is, you know. And, and, but God is always taking care of those things. He's the one that makes our hearts beat. He's the one that makes our lungs work. Uh, sometimes we hinder it by what we do with our lungs, but we we have, so we would be overwhelmed with our health. And we already are without seeing that stuff, right? I mean, look at the internet for five minutes and, you know, search some sort of ailment. and you know, all of a sudden you're like, good grief, am I doing anything right? Everything I do is killing me. You know, like go, go to WebMD and we've all got cancer all of a sudden and we're in need, you know, so I'm, I digress. But my point is, because of his conversation with the angel last week, Daniel all of a sudden has the veil removed and he sees that what I see is actually not the complete picture, that there's a spiritual war going on for people's souls, for nations, for power, for control. And the only way that Daniel knows now after conversing with this angel that he can be in part of it is through something that I think we highly undervalue, which is prayer. Daniel has spent three weeks praying. And I don't know about you guys, but I've been walking with the Lord about 11 years ago. And I have to tell you and confess in front of you, I struggle with prayer. I'm a doer. I feel like I can do more by doing things. But what I find out after reading last week's chapter in Daniel is that prayer actually does way more than I can ever do. And I'll give you an example, my own life. I was overwhelmed by some things that need done around this building because I want to get our children's church ready downstairs and build walls. And so one week I was just like, man, I don't know that we're ever going to have time. And you know how it is when you got a to-do list, you feel like it's never going to get done. And at certain moments you're like, it's never going to happen. I may as well just chuck it all. And I was on the way to work one morning and I just prayed. I was like, Lord, this is your church. Why am I sweating this? Would you make this stuff happen? And so I have to tell you, I prayed one time. I wouldn't call that faithful. But just a few days later, I show up at church on Sunday, and the lampposts out front are painted white. I didn't do that. I don't know who did that. I know a couple people said they would. It happened. Like, God did it. And then I come to church, my wife does, and there's paint on the walls downstairs. And I'm like, God did it. You know, and so that's a very small implication, but we need to pray about everything. Scripture tells us, be anxious for nothing, but in prayer and supplications, make your requests made known to God, so that the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will be given to you, so you can get through that stuff. He takes, Don't be anxious about anything, but pray about everything. Apparently, that's why he tells us that, because he desire and he answers. And so in this week's passage, we're seeing an answer to his prayer. He's been praying for understanding for three weeks. The angel shows up, and he gives him understanding. And in the midst of that, he finds out that there's rulers, there's principalities and powers that are in control of nations' leaders. The prince of Persia, in particular in this passage, has a, it seems, a demonic angel that's involved in their doings. And in order to send this messenger to Daniel, this demonic angel has to be battled off because he's hindering this angel from coming and telling Daniel all that we're going to read today. Which means to me that somehow in the heavenlies, Satan did not want Daniel or his people to know what was getting ready to take place in these nations because he wanted them to be discouraged. But Daniel, through his prayer, was able to strengthen and cause this to come to pass, and this angel is able to essentially, I talked about it last week, like a tag team match. This angel receives help from Michael the archangel, who is apparently the angel over Israel, and he tags in, takes care of this angel over Persia, and then this angel is able to come and speak to Daniel and give this message to give to the nation of Israel. So hopefully that wasn't too convoluted. But in verse 1 of chapter 11, he says, In the first year of Darius the Mede, this is the angel speaking, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Darius the Mede was the king that was flattered by his, um, his informers, his uh, cabinet, if you will, his advisors. And when he was flattered, they said, hey, we want to make a law. And this law is going to say for the next 30 days, nobody can worship anybody but you. Knowing that Daniel would go and worship and pray to his God. They were trying to catch Daniel and get him in a trap. And so when they made this law, they flattered the king, Darius. And Darius finds out later that his law that he made causes Daniel to be condemned to the lion's den. Remember that? So Daniel goes into the lion's den, sleeps wonderful. He trusts the Lord. The Lord sends an angel to shut the mouth of the lion's. And meanwhile, Darius is up all night going, Oh, I like Daniel, and he's going to die. So he prays for him. And what it says here in verse 1 is that in that year, this angel had stood up to confirm and strengthen Darius. He answered Darius' prayer and took care of Daniel. So this angel is the same one that was involved then, and he is now. Verse 2, And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia. And the four shall be richer, far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. So in verse 2, then verse 3, it says Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with a great dominion and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among those in his posterity, meaning his own descendants nor according to his dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom will be uprooted and even for others besides these. So he talks about these kingdoms. This is the kingdom of Persia. And after this king, uh, there arises four kings. Uh, We know them as uh, historically in 529 BC, there was a guy by the name of Cambyses, uh, Pseudo-Smyrdas in 522 BC. I'm probably butchering all these names, Darius, Hystaspes 521 BC, and Xerxes, who invaded Greece in 480 BC. He is the more rich and more powerful one. And when he invaded Greece in 480 BC, he was defeated. But before then, we know Xerxes to be the king that's named in the book of Ruth, Esther, thanks, by the name of Ahasuerus. Woo, that was close. Ahasuerus of the book of Esther. Uh, This mighty king after this is actually Alexander the Great, who came to be of power in 335 BC. So Alexander the Great takes on power. We've already read about this in previous chapters, but in this chapter, it gives more specifics. You know, it's one thing if somebody comes along and goes, hey, there's going to be a king, and then there's going to be another one that's going to defeat him. There's going to be another one that's going to rise up and defeat him. It's like, well, of course, that's what happens kings rise up and then they fall down. They battle, they are defeated. And okay, so that's a neat revelation. But when God gives these specific revelations about these kings and how they would rise up and how they would fall, then it gets a little bit more touchy because you're like, wow, he's either really right or we're going to find out he was wrong. And Daniel would never live to see these things come to pass, but the Israelites would. And they'd be able to look back at the book of Daniel and go, wow, God knew. So in verse 4, we see this great king rise up. His kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven. And we remember from previous chapters that Alexander the Great rose up quickly. He defeated the known world in 12 years. And after that, he died at the age of like in his lower 30s. And he was an alcoholic. He died of alcoholism. And he actually uh, died in a fever one night, even though he was this great king. And as a result of that, his kingdom was divided amongst four of his generals. These generals rise up and they take over different pieces of the kingdom. One general took over Macedonia, which we know today as Greece. His name was Cassander. Uh, Lysimachus uh, takes over Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. And then Seleucus Nicator takes over Syria, which we're going to know today in our passage as the northern king. He takes over Syria and the remainder of the Middle East. And Ptolemy becomes the ruler over Egypt, which is the kingdom of the south. Anytime you see these kings we're going to read about, make your center of your compass Israel. That's God's focal point. That's the apple of his eye. So east in the Bible always talks about east of Israel. West always talks about west of Israel. The northern kingdom will be north of Israel. And the southern kingdom, Ptolemy, will be the kingdom of Egypt. And so all that said, they all fought each other. And as think about it, a kingdom divided against itself, Jesus said this, would fall, right? If it's divided against itself, it's always spending all its resources fighting each other, it will fall. That's what happened to us in the, the civil war. So in verse 5, Also the king of the south shall become strong, as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. So this is the kingdom of Ptolemy down in Egypt. Verse 6, And the end of some years they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north in Syria to make an agreement. How would they make agreements between kingdoms? Many times they would do like they did in the United Kingdom. They would make marriages. Remember when the king of France, the king of uh, uh, England. They, got, they tried to make an agreement, and that agreement was with a marriage, a, a covenant agreement. So if we become family, we're the same kingdom now, right? So that's what they tried to do between the north and the south, and that actually took place. There was a, the daughter of the king of the south. Her name was Berenice, or Bernice is how I would say it, and she ends up going up and marrying in the north. But what it says there, at the end of some years, they shall join forces for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up. So the king of the north, what we know, and I'm not going to state specific names because I didn't remember them after I studied them, but the king of the north ends up marrying the the, the daughter of the king of the south but it's like a Jerry Springer deal. So, and that seems like that's that way every time in these kingdom marriages. So the king of the north was already married. In order to ki- marry this princess from the south, he basically dumped his wife and married her for the sake of politics. Imagine that. We never see that in the headlines. <laughs> and then as a result of that, when the king of... Which one dies? There's The king of the south dies this agreement essentially gets annulled. <laughs> no pun intended. It, it becomes annulled. So this, when this king of the north realizes the king of the south dies, he goes, oh, I don't have to honor my agreement anymore. And so he, he dumps the princess from the south and remarries his wife. So there's all kinds of craziness going on. So this is very specific. That's the point I want to make. If this isn't true, it better be true. Otherwise, if the book of Daniel and the prophecies did not come to pass, it makes God a liar, which makes him not God anymore. And so God doesn't uh, pull any punches. He's okay with being specific because not one jot, not one tittle of this word will go unfulfilled, And, and the word of God always proves true. So, neither he nor his authority shall stand, but he shall be given up she shall be given up with those who brought her and with him who begot her and with him who strengthened her in those times. But from a branch of the roots of the one shall rise in his place, who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north and deal with them and prevail. So imagine this, the daughter of the south that is dumped essentially, her brother gets wind of it. Now dad's gone, but brother's still around. And if you mess with somebody's little sister, you get trouble. So the, the prince of the south, this lady's brother, decides, you know what? He gets an army. He goes, we're going to throw down. And he goes up to the north, and they start battling over this marriage issue. And he goes up there, not to make sure they make ends meet and they, they remarry, but he goes up there to say, hey, you know what? You mess with my sister, I'm going to mess with you. So they start to war. So a branch from her roots, her brother, Shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them, and he will prevail. Verse 8. He shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt. He will make plunder of them, essentially. With their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, he shall continue more years than the king of the north. Also, the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south but shall return to his own land. However, his son shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress, and guess what? Stir up more strife. So (laughs) there's this warring and battling, and what I want to say about these kings of the north and the kings of the south, who's caught in the middle? Israel. The nation of Israel is stuck in the middle between two nations that are warring against each other. So you can imagine they, unbeknownst to themselves, are allowed to be a part of the middle of it. And history shows us that every time they can make a league or a covenant or agreement with one of these nations, they always choose the wrong one and end up getting enslaved by them. So the nation of Syria and Egypt have always been fighting and Israel is always caught in the middle. So if you were going to be in the middle of this kind of epic battle wouldn't you want to know about it? And so God, who is loving, says, Daniel, you need to tell your people this is going to take place. They're going to be stuck in the middle. Just write it out. It's going to be okay, because my promises to you are not void because of circumstances in your life. Do you know that God's promises to you in his word are not void because of the circumstances going on in your life? They're not even when it seems like everything is just done, when it seems like your life is torn up from the floor up, God is still aware of it and his promises to you are still good. He doesn't write void on the check. If he said it, if he's told you, he's made a promise to you, he never breaks it. And man's plans and schemes and battles and marriages and arguments and fighting where you're caught in the middle, they won't change that. God's promises will always be true. So, verse 9, also the, excuse me, verse 11. So the king of the south shall be moved with a rage and go out and fight with him, with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude. But the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. And when he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up. Hearts lifted up, that's always a sign of pride. Pride. And he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. Even though he casts down tens of thousands of his enemy, he won't prevail. For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. And so it's like, you know, if you've got kids and you've ever seen them fight, it's like it never stops. Okay. I'm going to come at you with battle rams, and I'm going to come at you with tanks, and then it just kind of builds up to this crescendo, and you're like, okay, here comes the nukes. It's over, right? And that's basically what it is. Well, I got a bigger gun. Well, I've got more people, and I've got bigger guns with every one of those people, and it's just this back and forth, and this, it takes two to tango, right? That's where wars and striving comes from within the human heart, but it affects entire nations. So, verse 14, In those times many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also, violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. So, verse 14 is the first mention in this prophecy about God's people. It says, Violent men from amongst your people, Daniel, which is the Israelites, they will exalt themselves in fulfillment of this vision, but they will fall. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. He's able to bring destruction. It's within his, his strength to do so. He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do. So verse 14 through 16 leads up to a historical figure, which we've spoken about before. His name is Antiochus, but it's not Antiochus Epiphanes. It's Antiochus the Great. And he's from the Seleucus kingdom in Syria, the king of the north. And he arrives in in Israel. In verse 17, his daughter, it says, well, let's read that verse. He shall also set his face to enter with the strengths of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it. This daughter is the well-known historical figure by the name of Cleopatra. Anybody remember Cleopatra? Cleopatra. there's all kinds of movies made about her, but essentially lots of people know the name Cleopatra. Some of you, it's just because of a country song. But the idea, <laughs> yeah. So um, the women to destroy it, but she, notice this, Cleopatra shall not stand with him or be for him. So she's essentially brought in to make a marriage, and, but she doesn't back up what she's told to do. She rebels against her dad. After this, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many with him. But a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end. With the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and will not be found. Antiochus the Great is the man we're talking about here. He shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, heading home with his tail between his legs but he shall stumble and fall and not be found and there shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom but within a few days he shall be destroyed but notice this not in anger or in battle so the this person spoken of here uh, will not be destroyed in anger or in battle his own people end up killing him by poisoning his food They did not like him. He imposed great amounts of taxes on them. And so they were like, hey, let's get rid of this guy. So they just poisoned his food. Uh, One of the reasons that kings oftentimes had uh, cupbearers, people that would taste their drinks and their food before they would eat it. Basically, you'd get a meal, somebody bring it to you. You'd have your cupbearer taste it. And if within a certain amount of time they didn't die, okay, I can eat now. So you'd never get a warm meal, but you'd also stay warm and not cold yourself. So back onto this passage, verse 20, 1, 21, in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty. In other words, he is not a descendant of a king, uh, but he shall come in peaceably. Oh, that's good. Finally, there's some peace mentioned in this passage. So far, it's been wars and striving. Can you imagine if you went through decades of war and striving? What would be the heart cry? Peace. Lord, please bring peace to our land. So when there's a desire for peace, there's always people looking for peace. And if someone comes in peaceably, what would your assumption be? Hey, finally, we got what we prayed for. But notice this. He will come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. What does the word intrigue mean? Flattery, smooth talk. Beware of those. Proverbs says it all over and over again. Those who speak to you with smooth talk and flattering words, they're a snare to you. They can be a snare. And to the nation of Israel, this man came in. His name was Antiochus Epiphany. And he was a type of Antichrist. He came in peaceably, they did not give him a position of authority. But after speaking with smooth words, much like the snake in the garden that spoke to Eve, smooth words captivated their hearts. And with the force of a flood, verse 22, be swept away from before him and be broken. So his words, he comes in smoothly and then he defeats and conquers. And also the prince of the covenant. Who's the prince of the covenant? He's the high priest. He actually even convinces the high priest that he's somebody good, somebody good for the nation. So all of these people that hear his words are captivated by him and they're swept away from before him and broken. And the prince of the covenant, the high priest at the time was as well. Verse 23, and after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully. How do you make a league with somebody? You make an agreement. You come to an agreement, an arrangement. He shall act deceitfully, which he already was, right? He spoke with smooth words for ill gain. For he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. So he comes in small and and defeats from the inside. If, If Satan can't destroy you from without, if the forces of evil can't convince you that they can defeat you by discouraging you and defeating you in your walk with the Lord, what they do is they become friends with you. They come in with smooth words, and they start to tear you down from the inside out. And that's what Satan can do. He can speak to you things that only you hear and discourage you from within. That is why one of the biggest reasons I always tell people, hang out with Christians. Be around people who are like-minded. They're going to come around you, and naturally, hopefully, there'll be people that will remind you of God's faithfulness and His Word. When doubt creeps in, you need to be around other brothers and sisters that can remind you that God is still good, and that the things that you're thinking, and you're going to tell them, you're going to be like, I'm going to, I've been discouraged lately, this is what I've been thinking, and they can, if they're versed in the word of God at all, go, that's not of God, that's of Satan. You're feeling condemned, you're feeling separated from God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And they can remind you of his promises, they can remind you that he's the one that's faithful to complete the work that he started, even when you've failed. God can't forgive me of this. Yes, he can. He died to forgive us of all sin. And so, we need that. But this man comes in and does this to the nation of Israel, and he does it. He shall enter peaceably, verse 24, even into the richest places of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He essentially comes in and he confirms the covenant. He sets up worship much like the Antichrist will. And then in what it says, he shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches. He shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. So this guy comes in, he speaks smooth words, and he's essentially Robin Hood. Who doesn't like Robin Hood? He comes in and he steals from the rich, and he disperses all the goods to the poor. Hey, this has got to be good, right? But it's not because he does it to gain the trust of the people. And this happened with Antiochus Epiphanes. Verse 25, He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away and many shall fall down slain. But these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil. They shall speak lies at the same table. These people, these evil kings can't even make agreements with one another and honor them. People that make promises and don't hold them uh, are just like these guys. But it shall not prosper for the end will still be at the appointed time. So, this is not the end. This is essentially the darkness that leads up to the light at the end of the tunnel. Verse 28: While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so that he shall do damage and return to his own land. So, I know that a, there's a lot of this stuff that, that I'm not getting in depth into uh, for the sake of time, but also there's many of these things that took place. Um, And you can dig into them on on your own. If you get a chance, uh, you can go and and read. um, J. Vernon McGee has a commentary. I think you can get it online. And he actually goes into these kingdoms and how all of these things were specifically fulfilled. But at the appointed time, he shall return and go toward the south. It shall not be like the former or the latter, for ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore, he shall be grieved and return in rage against the Holy Covenant, and do damage. Again, he does damage to the, the people of God. And he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, and they shall take away the daily sacrifices, and place there the abomination of desolation. So he takes away their ability to make sacrifice in the temple, he stops sacrifices. He um, defiles the temple. And notice what it says in verse 32 Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. He speaks to them, he encourages them. Hey, keep doing what you're doing. But notice what it says here. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Have you ever heard about the, the fact that there's these silent years between the New, or excuse me, the Old and the New Testament? There's this period where essentially there was no hearing of the Word of God, and we did not hear anything until Jesus shows up on the scene from the time of Malachi all the way to the time of Matthew. But what we need to know is that God was not silent about these years. Even though he was silent in those years, he was not silent about those years because Antiochus Epiphanes, showed up in Israel in this intertestamental period in between the old and the new. And what God told them ahead of time is when he does this, those who know their God will be strong and they will do great exploits. We find them to be, this is a non-biblical book, but it is a historical book. First and second Maccabees speaks of this people called the Maccabees, when Antiochus Epiphanes comes in and sets up the idol in the temple, when they show up, they battle against them and they retake the temple. They actually go in, they cleanse the temple, and they set up worship again. And they do this, and they don't have enough olive oil. So what history tells us is that they lit the incense and and all the things going on in the temple, and miraculously, God... Provided for them enough oil to burn for eight days. This is where we get the celebration of Hanukkah, the festival of lights, the feast of dedication that Jesus actually celebrated in uh, chapter eleven of I think it was either Matthew or John. So don't go look that one. You guys search that one out on your own. Let me know where it was. So, but my point is, Jesus actually celebrated that festival, proving that it existed and that this prophecy was fulfilled when Antiochus Epiphanes shut down worship. God kept it going, used the Maccabees, and this is what speaks of those men. God shall be strong on behalf of the people who know him and carry out great exploits. Verse 33, and those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame, by captivity and plundering, and when they fall they shall be aided with a little help, But many shall join them by intrigue, and some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, to purify them, and to make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. None of this changes the appointed time when Jesus will return. What I want to point out is then verse 36 switches over. In this prophecy, we just get this continual conversation of historical events But then in verse 36, it's no longer talking about Antiochus Epiphany, but what we're going to find out as we study it next week is that he's going to talk about the Antichrist who will be at the end. And so um, Antiochus Epiphanes is a picture of Antichrist, but he is not Antichrist, nor was Bill Clinton, nor was whoever your political guy is that everybody said that's the Antichrist. It's not him. There will be people that will be in the spirit of Antichrist but they are not, in fact, them. So we'll find out some more about that guy next week. But as we close, I wanted to just remind you, these things were not, th- these are historical things that have already happened. So if we can read this scripture and even just pull out a couple of instances where God has told them ahead of time to encourage them and comfort them for things that would come, how much more that we've been given the Holy Spirit and God's word can God reveal to us the things that will take place in our lives? Maybe not with this kind of detail, but, but things that you and I as individuals need to know, God wants to reveal those to us. We have to do simply just ask him, Lord, show me the way. Show me what's coming. Prepare me for the day of adversity. God desires to prepare you for the things that are coming. And it's not all going to be rainbows and, and, and bunnies. It won't be. Jesus said, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. So what are you going to do in the day of adversity? Are you going to run and forsake the Lord? Are you going to try to speak smooth words so you can get your will down on earth? Or are you going to trust the Lord in the midst of it, knowing that he knows what the end is? He's told us we are promised a future with him forever. Forever. If you trust Him with that future, let me ask you, do you trust Him with today? I struggle with that, and I think many of you do too. I want to trust God for heaven, but I don't know how to trust Him sometimes with my finances. I want to trust Him, uh, you know, for, for my future life, but many times I struggle with trusting Him with my job situation. I just do, and that's going to be natural, but I believe that we will examine ourselves and let God show us where we are not trusting him, I think he wants to reveal to us what he wants to do. He still wants to prophesy things into our lives that we can trust him, knowing that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and be able to trust him through the hard times. So as we get ready to take communion, communion is for remembrance. Communion is to remember what God has done, to remember what God has promised he will do, And then they examine ourselves and say, am I trusting God for what he's doing right now? Some of you aren't trusting him. I'm one of those. I was very convicted by this. But he wants to encourage us. He wants to strengthen us. He wants to build us up so that we can withstand in the day of adversity. If we'll let him. If any one of you lacks wisdom, James writes, Let him ask of the Lord and he will give to all liberally without reproach. He doesn't go, oh, you're asking for wisdom again. He goes, good, you want it. Now you're ready to receive it. Ask him for it. So as we take communion, remember that we, uh, if you don't consider yourself a part of this body, uh, that's okay. We give open communion. uh, But I want you to uh, spend some time examining yourselves. Am I trusting the Lord with today? I don't think many of us struggle with that, uh, with trusting him with our future. We know where we're going, but many of us struggle with trusting him today. And in the days of tons of stuff going on, busy schedules, we're going through a season of that right now ourselves, it's hard to trust him. But this too shall pass. It's a season. It's not the end of all things. And God wants to be with you in the midst of the adversity. So let's pray. Father, thank you this opportunity to study your word thank you for the encouragement that you gave the israelite people uh, maybe they didn't even know that it was encouragement at the time but father we thank you that you know the beginning from the end so we don't have to that you're god over time you're god over our lives and if we'll just let you be god we'll just let you keep making our hearts beat we'll let you Keep taking care of all the minute details behind the scenes. If we'll seek you first in your kingdom and your righteousness. You'll add all these things unto us. You said in Matthew chapter 6 that uh, you know, the birds are less important than us, and yet our Father in heaven feeds them. They don't build barns. They don't have to save up. And you even said about the flowers of the field that uh, they don't spin or toil, they don't stress out, and yet they're more beautifully clothed than all of the robes of Solomon. How much more, Lord, uh, you've provided this great salvation. Are you able to take care of our daily? So, Father, as we spend this time uh, worshiping you, would you remind us of the things that you've been faithful in? Would you cause us to see you as the one, the source of life? and to get back to what matters the most. And in the midst of that, Lord, would you help us to trust you in the things that we know we have responsibilities for. Help us to do the best we can and to trust you with the results. In Jesus' name, amen.